0: All right. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming. uh, I am in Keith's stead today. Keith is at the Society for Adolescent Health Medicine uh, this week. Um, so it is my honor to introduce Dr. Kathy Budman. Um, first I want a couple of announcements. Um, as most of you are heading into your academic meetings or uh, society meetings over the next couple of months, Sholene and I have been very grateful to coordinate Grand Rounds for the past couple of years. But if you have interesting speakers, interesting colleagues who you'd like to bring to Dartmouth, Um, to give Grand Rounds, please uh, shoot off an email to either myself or Sholene and we'll see what we can do to get it organized. Um, And in the meantime, I am grateful to Dr. Uh, Julie Balaban um, from the Department of Psychiatry and Ali from the Tourette Association based in New York, um, who have coordinated with us to bring Dr. Kathy Budman here um, to present Grand Rounds. Um, Ali's got a couple of announcements, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about Dr. Budman, who uh, graduated from Brown with a degree in biology, followed by um, uh, her MD at SUNY at Buffalo. Um, she did her internship at, in San Francisco, followed, I just learned, from a stint in New South Wales, Australia, as a family doc. Um, came back to finish up her psychiatry residency um, in New York, um, and really has an interest in. She's currently a professor at Hofstra, and currently has an interest in clinical trials for treatment of Tourette syndrome and associated disorders, the neurobiology and phenomenology of Tourette syndrome and associated disorders, and she also has an interest in rage attacks and intermittent explosive disorder. So she's going to be talking with us about Tourette syndrome today. But I'm going to introduce Allie first to help coordinate uh, Dr. Budman's visit up here. So thank you very much, Allie. Thank you, Kathy, and. Uh, um, I just wanted to thank uh, Dr. Julie Balbin and uh, Dr. Hitchcock uh, for hosting our presentation today. Um, some of you have probably received the green sheet, which is our program evaluation, and you can fill that at the end. Um, the purple sheet is our referral listing. If you um, have an interest in treating patients with TRED um, and want to be part of our referral listing, a lot of patients, uh, families, individuals call our, our organization asking us for local providers who are in their area. So if you're interested, um, you can fill that out and then give that back to me at the end as well. Um, there there is a sign-in sheet floating around. Uh, there are a couple of them. There, It's a white sheet, um, but I can go around and um, collect them at the end as well. So um, without further ado, we have uh, Dr. Kathy Budman. Thank you.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's been a, a really lovely visit, and I, I thank Julie, I thank Kathy for uh, bringing me here today. So, just out of curiosity, and I always ask this: how, how many in this room have actually treated someone with Tourette syndrome? Wonderful. This is 20 years ago, I'd ask that question and <laughs> would see sort of blank faces. So I think uh, that speaks to the the great work of uh, the Tourette Association in working to uh, enhance awareness. Um, Before I get started, I do want to disclose that I do clinical uh, studies, so phase two through four studies that are funded by industry. I won't be speaking about any of the uh, investigational agents at all. I served on the National Medical Advisory Board for 15 years and rotated off recently, um, but I still serve on the the Long Island chapter of the Tread Association and CHAD. And because there's really very few three to, to be uh, specific agents that are FDA approved for treatment of ticks, pretty much any discussion I have about medication will be off-label. Okay. So we'll have a little whirlwind here. Um, for, for some of you, this will be review. For others, it, it may be the first time you learn a little more about Tourette's disorder. Um, what? What are ticks? <laughs> well, actually, w- when you're working with children, th- this is a pretty important point to make. Because uh, I could say that you know nine times out of 10, if I use that word straight up, the child recoils in you know, panic that they have some sort of insect. Maybe it's because I'm a psychiatrist and I see children who have uh, a lot of anxiety. But I always have to make that point very clear. But the other point, and this is really more to, to their classmates, is ticks aren't contagious. Now, maybe I should put a little quotation. If you go to a support group, the truth is, as many children will start picking up each other's tick, if you want to call that contagious. But it's really it, it's it's not an infectious uh, process that uh, you can be contaminated and uh, develop ticks. It's not dangerous. You can have Tourette's syndrome and other tick disorders and have a normal lifetime. That's relevant for life insurance, for example. And it's not signs of a mental breakdown. And this is important, too, because so many of our, our, our youth uh, with Tourette syndrome and other tick disorders say that they're looked at as crazy. That's a term that really upsets them quite a bit, because they're not crazy. Um, but people might view some of their symptoms, particularly the more complex and unusual symptoms, as signs of uh, insanity. So what is a tick? Well, most of you know this, too. All right? So it's a movement disorder. But unlike tremor, which if you can see probably from the back of the room, you can see that I have an essential tremor that is accentuated by caffeine. It's a regular movement. It's rhythmic, right? Unlike ticks, which are are very brief, irregular movements, you can have a, a more sustained dystonic tick. Those are less common. The most common ones are really career form, uh, very brief, abrupt. And depending upon whether they make a sound or simply a movement, by convention we divide them into phonic ticks, ones that produce sounds, and motor ticks, ones that produce a movement. But let's think about it, really. Is there any difference? Not really. All of these ticks are really motor ticks, because a phonic tick is simply a motor tick that emits a sound. That's all it is. Then we further break them down into simple, meaning a single muscle group, and then complex, involving multiple muscle groups. Now, one of the features of tics, I'm actually very curious about this, too. So when you see children with tic disorders in your office, if that's the the presenting complaint, do you often see the tics at the office visit? Sometimes, always, (laughs) never. I, I always tell patients, just schedule the consultation and your your child's tics will go away. Because typically, in a novel setting, that's exactly what happens. So I don't exclude a diagnosis of a tic disorder just because the symptoms aren't obvious in the examination room. In fact, what I do, my strategy is I let the children wait in the waiting room a little bit. My secretary uh, and office manager's fantastic Tick detective. At this point, she can really mm-hmm. see a lot in the waiting room. Then everybody comes up, and you know, nothing comes into my office. No ticks. And then as they're uh, leaving the office, I often can see the ticks again. And it, it's it's just a classic uh, uh, quality of tick disorders. But it's also one that confuses schools because often the parents will say, you know, my child has such bad ticks. They come home at night. They can't fall asleep. And the teacher will say, I don't see a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see a thing. But often the symptoms are suppressed during the daytime uh, and, and they sort of relax. They get into a setting where they feel more comfortable and they tick. So they're mysterious in that regard. They change in type, they change in location, change in intensity, and they actually are decreased in certain contexts. So, for example, any of you have read Oliver Sacks's literature? He has uh, one book where he talks about a surgeon who have actually met, Mort Duran, uh, and he is a Canadian general surgeon who has pretty severe tics. But once he gets into the operating theater and in Focuses on his surgery, his ticks basically melt away. I mean, you just can't see anything. It's remarkable. And then the minute he steps out of the surgical field, he begins ticking again. And he's actually a pilot. And uh, <laughs> he offered to fly me to Seattle from Vancouver, and I declined. But that was really my anxiety. Um, he's a very, very competent pilot. So when he's focusing uh, intensely, his his ticks disappear. Sometimes the tics will remit during sleep, but not always, so they can be present during sleep. And part of the reason I think these symptoms were previously regarded as nervous habits is because they do, in fact, increase with anxiety. But a lot of medical symptoms increase with anxiety when you think about that, right? So they are not unique in that. And, and it doesn't have to be a negative anxiety. It could be excitement. Go into a birthday party or a basketball game, situations like that that would increase uh, tick frequency and intensity. And they're preceded by what we call a premonitory urge. So what is this premonitory urge? The best way to describe it to a child or parent is everyone, pretty much everyone's had a mosquito bite, right? We all know what that feeling is like, and you get that sense of itchiness. And you try to ignore it. But all of a sudden, it's very hard to think about anything else except this urge to scratch, and then what happens? What happens after you scratch? Anybody? You feel better for a second, and then what happens? And then you want to scratch again. All right. Until you know, if you're like me, you've got a you know bloody mosquito bite at at the end of the day. So. It's very much like that. A premonitory urge is a sensory experience. It could be discomfort. It could be pressure. It could be a tickle, and that—that that is the involuntary aspect of the tick, really. The involuntary or or semi voluntary uh, component is the actual motor execution of the tick itself to alleviate that sensory experience. And I think we focus so much on the tick, on the actual physical manifestation when, in fact, the premonitory urge in some cases is more disturbing, all right? That's sort of the iceberg beneath the surface. So this is to just give you an idea of the array of different types of ticks that you can see. And eye blinking, obviously, is, is one of the most common and uh, actually not always recognized. Um, but then there are others that, that could look very much like deliberate voluntary behavior. I always think that the smiling tick is a nice one, but I've had children get into trouble with that tick because the teacher feels they're being fresh or uh, provocative. And this is, again, uh, to give you an idea of the different array of phonic ticks. Now, sniffing and throat clearing, particularly if they're low intensity, these could go largely unrecognized. The, the uh, echolalia, I, I told the story yesterday about the first patient I ever saw with Tourette syndrome was when I was a resident. I was in the outpatient psychiatry clinic, and I was supposed to see a 26-year-old man with chronic schizophrenia. And this young man came into my office, and he was spitting and twirling and grimacing and shouting, and I had never seen anything like it. I, I really had no idea what was wrong with him. I thought maybe he had autism. And I at least... Had the good sense to go down the hall to to the child psychiatrist, um, and uh, you know the attending there immediately recognized it as Tourette syndrome. But what was so unfortunate is this young man had been institutionalized since age sixteen because he had subvocalizations, which someone had dubbed talking to himself. And his behavior was so bizarre that it was assumed that he was psychotic. So he, he spent a decade unnecessarily in a psychiatric institution. So that was pretty compelling. You will get a copy of this. Uh, this is the, uh, um, a documentary from HBO. <laughs>
0: Dread syndrome is a certain brain defect. It's a neurological problem that I was born with that causes you to tick. Tick? People are flying, kicking like coffee, to which like snapping all the time. do a lot of things people wouldn't like. My mom calls me the mouth because I make a lot freaking
1: Right. Thought- to leave that last one um, because that's an important point. These children want to be regular kids just like everybody else, and that's probably the biggest barrier. I mean, there are some people, uh, like my colleague Peter Hollenbach, who, who used to be on the Scientific Advisory Board, he's, he's a molecular biologist at Purdue, and he's had lifelong Tourette, and he calls it a disorder of the observer because it 's really more how others respond to you that 's what causes you know the the greatest disability in many respects. so we have a number of different rating scales i won 't belabor these too much, but there are uh, ways that you can uh, track tick interventions and response so the uh, Yale glow tick severity scale is probably the most widely used it looks at five different dimensions of ticks, frequency, intensity. Um, complexity, disruption, and um, and then it has subscores for the phonic ticks and the motor ticks. You add them together to get a total tick score and that's one way of of estimating whether your intervention is reducing the total ticks. It's imperfect, but it's about the best we have. We more recently have been using this uh, specific tick quality of life scale to, to measure quality of life in children. So differential diagnosis. Tourette's disorder is still a, a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have your idiopathic or primary tic disorders. And then you have your secondary tic disorders, where you can actually ascribe these symptoms to an underlying medical cause. So it could be hypothyroidism. It could be uh, substance abuse. It, it, tics are seen with uh, uh, the uh, Post infectious uh, NMDA encephalitis, but along with other symptoms. So you can see ticks in a variety of other uh, medical contexts. And then we have these symptoms that frequently co occur, sometimes blend with ticks, or are distinct with. So, for example, stereotypy. I know you're pediatricians, you know this, but a lot of my colleagues in psychiatry don't realize you can have stereotypes in normal children. So about 7% of normal children have stereotypy. Well, you can have stereotypy, and you can have tics. You can have stereotypy, autistic spectrum, and tics. Um, you can have compulsion, stereotypy, tics, and you know, the whole gamut. Um, but these, are, these behaviors, uh, such as skin picking, higher co-occurrence with tic disorders, restless leg syndrome, higher co-occurrence with tic disorders as well. So I guess what you might want to do as pediatricians is think of ticks as that kind of flag. It's flagging you to look that there might be some other things beneath the surface worth exploring. I don't know that I have to spend any time sort of emphasizing this point for your audience, but uh, again, how would we tell the difference? I had a little girl I was asked to see a couple of weeks ago, and uh, her her primary. Care doctor had called it a tick. But she had had this symptom like this, and she would grimace when she did it. She had that symptom basically since she was about 18 months old. And it never changed. She actually enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it was persistent. Um, and we worked with her on a habit reversal uh, treatment to sort of minimize performing it at school. She still does it at home, but it's not a tick. Now, interestingly, she has tics in the family. Her father has tics. Her father has obsessive compulsive disorder. And more recently, she's developed humming and some facial tics. So she has both. Um, But one way of distinguishing them is is just the onset, uh, whether or not they fluctuate and, and sort of what makes them better or worse. Now what about compulsion? This one comes up a lot. I would be lying to you to say I can always tell the difference. It's really not that easy particularly in younger children who have very hard time identifying what that obsessive anxiety might be. So uh, you have to get to be good tick detectives too. And one way of trying to determine this, and and I say you really do have to dig a little bit, Uh, we had a child in our protocol who said that they had a throat-clearing tick. That's a pretty common tick, Um, and if I hadn't had a very astute research assistant, we would have accepted that at face value. But she sort of probed a little further, and it turned out that this child had been brushing his tongue and brushing you know, the back of his throat very hard because he thought he was emitting a malodorous uh, scent. You know, they had really bad breath, and that maybe if he could kind of clear his throat, he could get rid of it. Well, what would we call that? Compulsion, right? It's not a tick. But uh, there, there's definitely areas of overlap. So if you can identify that that uh, antecedent, obsessive, intrusive, repetitive thought or anxiety or fear, or sometimes this need to be just right, that's sort of often a a red flag or clue that you're dealing with an obsessive compulsive symptom, not a tick. So this is our DSM-5. You don't need to know about this either, do you? But it's our latest manual. There was an attempt to sort of make it a little less categorical and more dimensionally based. Um, I don't know that we could say it succeeded, but this is what we have right now in psychiatry for diagnosing tick disorders. And so they eliminated the previous category of transient tick. And the reason they did that is that the evidence is that ticks aren't transient. So it's a little bit like airway reactivity. If you have a propensity to wheeze, it may go away for periods of time, but it can also come back. That's similarly the case with ticks. So it can go for long periods with a full remission and have them return unexpectedly later points in life. And they added something called provisional uh, Tourette syndrome as a diagnosis. And that was a way of getting around this requirement that the ticks be present for at least one year. Now why would that be the case? Because most of the patients will come to present when their tics are the worst. And they will often tell you they never saw anything before. And yet, if you go back and you look at videotapes or you get uh, you know, teacher reports, yeah, they did have some facial grimacing or maybe some you know, mild shoulder movements that nobody really made much of. So the time that parents bring their child in for evaluation is usually at when tics are at their peak, but not necessarily at tick onset. So there often are a uh, history of tics that uh, preceded the actual diagnosis. So this is just the formal diagnostic criteria for Tourette's disorder. Now, why, why is this delayed? Well, I know as pediatricians, your office visits are incredibly intense and busy. There isn't a whole lot of time to do the kind of history that would be required. Um, I know one thing that comes up quite a bit, and I'd urge you to avoid this if you can, is don't tell the parents, don't worry, it will go away. If they're asking you about it, they're worried, and in fact, you don't know for sure whether it is on a trajectory of getting worse, which happens, right? As, as you approach puberty, the ticks tend to intensify, or whether it's associated with these other uh, psychiatric comorbidities, which can become you know, really fierce uh, opponents for that child's development. So, I think it's important to validate it. You don't have to make it into something bigger than it is. You can say, "Yes, this uh, motor ticks. We'll keep an eye on it," but I, I wouldn't just completely dismiss it. I think that that does your families a disservice. Um, obviously, these symptoms are very frequently mistaken for eye problems, allergies. Uh, you know, sinus problems, et cetera. And you can understand that, but once you've had a workup and excluded these kinds of things, I I really don't think uh, you have to revisit that again and again. Less commonly now, uh, these symptoms are ascribed to sort of attention-seeking. I can guarantee you, no child wants to be barking in class. You know, it's just not not a way that most children would seek attention. But we have had children punished for that kind of behavior on Long Island, even in 2016. And uh, another assumption is that you have to have coprolalia for the diagnosis. Any of you believe that or thought that? Or Good. You wouldn't admit it in this. Room anyway, <laughs> but um, you know, it's the most colorful, it's the most flamboyant symptom. It's the one that uh, receives the most attention by the uh, the news and, and you know television. But it's certainly not necessary for the diagnosis and occurs in in less than 20 percent of patients when when it's there. And I don't even know if it's the worst symptom, quite honestly. I think a constant screeching tick, which I've seen, is really painful. That's a pretty bad symptom. And uh, there are other ones that are really, you know, some of the self-injurious ticks are worse. So, uh, the general features, like most psychiatric disorders, it's actually about three to four times more common in males than females. The average age of onset is probably approximately six, we'll say. It typically starts with a simple motor tick, eye blinking being the most common one, and then it proceeds from a rostral-caudal fashion to involve more the the face, the head, the neck, shoulders. There are silent ticks that you won't hear about if you don't ask about, like tensing your abdomen, for example, or tensing your buttocks, very common ticks. Or there's one I always ask about because it's never on, on my rating scales, but pushing your toes against your sneakers. Pretty common little, but who would know if you didn't ask about it? It's just what the child does. Um, The the tics tend to sort of crescendo, so they wax and wane, and they sort of crescendo right around puberty. When you think about it as pediatricians, could you find a worse time to have your worst tics? It's so unfair. But I guess the consolation prize compared to other medical conditions is that, generally speaking, most tics improve by late adulthood. So, by late adolescence, early adulthood, there is generally a contraction in the numbers and types of tics and their intensity for most people. Problem is, is we don't really have a crystal ball to tell that very worried parent who has a child with severe tics at age eight, will these last or not? We have some... uh, I want to say, loose predictors, all right, that are based on smaller studies, uh, such as if you get uh, neuroimaging, small caudate volume is is predictive. Uh, Severe tics by late adolescence is predictive. Severe OCD symptoms appears to be predictive. And uh, there is some evidence that severe tic severity earlier in childhood is predictive. So, is this rare, do you think? You know, I'm asking you a trick question. (laughs) I thought it was rare. I had never heard of it in medical school, I'll be honest with you. I think there was like a little paragraph about Tourette's disorder, and it just sounded like, you know, one of those zebra syndromes, and I didn't really pay very much attention to it. But it's turning out like other conditions, like OCD. We used to think obsessive-compulsive disorder was very rare. And then when they did the uh, epidemiological studies going house to household, they found out, no, it's really not that rare. Well, the same thing is probably turning out to be the case with Tourette. This was the first uh, prevalent study done in the United States. and uh, This was in 2007, and it was conducted by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. And... I want to tell you about the methodology because I think it will help you understand why this is an underestimate of prevalence. So what it was was random telephone calls to the home, and the uh, study coordinator would say, has anybody in your home been diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome? No. What would be the problem with that, right? I mean, you'd have to be diagnosed to know. So um, using that methodology, however, one finding they uh, discovered, which I think is worth noting and and following up on, was that it was twice as likely to be diagnosed in the non-Hispanic white population compared to African-Americans and Hispanic whites. Is this because the real prevalence is lower in these groups? That's not my belief. But I think it remains to be seen. Right? I, I think uh, among my own population of patients, and I treat both adults and children, I see quite a few African Americans coming in with a diagnosis of ADHD. So that diagnosis has been made. But they have ticks. And I asked them about their tics, and they said, Oh yeah, my dad has that, my brother has some too. I just thought that's the way I am, and that was the end of that. But you know, the tick symptoms were largely ignored this was a follow-up study uh, again what can i emphasize here that uh... The, the tick disorders are not solitary symptoms so when you see ticks there you, you have to look a little bit further because uh... in the overwhelming majority of cases there are co-occurring conditions the eye points i, I believe started at seven that the first time I knew that there was something wrong. He was at the shop, And was Marcus was blinking his eye and rolling. His eyes were rolling. And I said, Well, why are your eyes doing that? He said, I don't know. And I could say, Stop doing it. The more I told him stop, the more they that. I said, To his position, they said, Well, boys usually get hyper, they're active, and he wants attention. He me as a single mom, and he's my only child, I may be overreactive. So we just both need to calm down and go back home. So we did that. And uh, Mark Mr. stopped twitching. He started twitching more, his eyes started blinking more. And he asked the doctor and I said, I want you to do some sort of test. I'm a little kind. There's something wrong with my child. I'm not a physician, but I'm a mom and I know there's something wrong. And so he says, okay, uh, I'll check him. he said, he has a tip. We have blister eyes, both boys did, very common, no He's under stress, school, hair pressure, and testing. I went home and I still felt comfortable knowing that Marcus has something called a tick. I need to know what is a
0: tick. So I go online and I searched for a tick, and up came the red signal.
1: Now, I wish I could say in 2016 that we're better at making this diagnosis as healthcare providers. We're not. In fact, it's very embarrassing to say. I, I, I always say I have a pretty easy job because what happens is patients come to me and they say, I think I have Tourette's syndrome, and nine times out of 10, I say, you're right. But they've gone on a very long journey trying to get to my office and they've made that diagnosis themselves, not, not by healthcare providers, which is why you as pediatricians are frontline. You are right there to make that correct diagnosis and alleviate a lot of suffering and anxiety uh, by doing so. I think maybe there's a reluctance to make the diagnosis because maybe you're afraid that you would stigmatize the child. Uh, but being diagnosed and given an explanation for your symptoms is very validating for, for most children. So, is it rare? Well, as I said, we used to say the prevalence was 1 in 10,000. But now that we have uh, you know, better statistical methods and methodologies for looking at prevalence, uh, it actually looks like it approaches almost 1%, which is, it's not rare, you know. It's certainly not as rare as we thought it would be, and and if you include milder cases of motor and phonic tics, it, it certainly is closer to that 0.9%. What do we know about the genetics? Well, you know, this is a a frustrating disorder, in a sense, to study genetically because you can see it running in families, and you can see, you know, multi-generation kindreds. And yet, despite uh, best efforts, no one has identified a TS gene. And that's because, like most other uh, complex neuropsychiatric disorders, it is polygenetic. All right, and there's probably multiple ways of inheriting it. It could be bilineal. It can be uh, transmitted very rarely as a single gene, like the uh, histidine decarboxylase story you might have heard about. Um, but the, but one fact remains. It is, among the neuropsychiatric disorders, probably the most heritable. So when you see the child, you look for other siblings who might have symptoms, and you certainly look at the parents who always say, no, I don't have ticks," but, you know. <laughs> I always say within a year you will find someone in your family who has tics because uh, in in most cases it does turn out to be the case. So what do we know about genetics? Well, it is important, as I just emphasized. The modes of inheritance probably do vary. So if you have tics and OCD, your inheritance might be different than the person who has autistic spectrum and uh, tics or it might be different than the child who presents with almost a bipolar-like picture, tics, and obsessive-compulsive symptoms. Uh, And we also know that environmental factors influence uh, the disorder. I love talking to pediatricians about pandas. I I always get very mixed reactions. So I want to know what this audience feels about this diagnostic entity. Don't tell me you're neutral. I don't believe it. Raise your hand if you're a believer. Everybody get struck, so you can associate anything with struck. OK. So believers raise their hand, non-believers. If you go by the original description of the explosive onset of ticks, OCD, I've seen a couple of those. but Most that get sent for candies candy are, are very soft. See, uh, what what I found intriguing, there's actually a book. It's unfortunately called The Cursing Brain, written by the medical historian Howard Kushner. It's really fascinating because this debate about the relationship between group A, beta hemolytic strep, and ticks has been going on for 200 years. It's not a new debate. It's been going on a long time. And in part, uh, it's because uh, it's very hard to, to demonstrate that cause and effect with a strep infection right because the the index infection and the onset of of the neuropsychiatric symptoms has a long latency, so it 's really hard <coughs> to prove furthermore the ticks themselves I told you wax and wane, so it 's sort of like chasing chasing a shadow a little bit there 's very mixed evidence uh, I think that y- you could say there are some animal models that would support autoimmune antibodies uh, attacking certain elements of Uh, Basal ganglia, there are some clinical studies, like the Kell study, the uh, epidemiological studies, which showed multiple infections being associated with later onset of ticks. But the bottom line in 2016 is the PANDAS hypothesis is still a hypothesis. So it it hasn't been proven. In fact, just like our institution's been rebranded and the Tourette Association has been rebranded, so has PANDAS which is unfortunate because PANDAS is such a cuddly little name. <laughs> Depending on whether you're a pediatri- uh, pediatric neurologist or a child psychiatrist, you could call it PANS or CANS, so they can't even agree right there. Um, but it is uh, basically the same sort of definition as as earlier PANS, although now less emphasis on ticks and more emphasis on obsessive-compulsive symptoms and opening up the possibility that strep may not be the only agent that could induce uh, these symptoms. Oops. Well, <laughs> should you, do you, consider autoimmune, infectious autoimmune processes when you see a child with tick disorders? What do you think? I don't know that it's best practice yet, right? I don't think that that would necessarily be best practice. But if you see a child who uh, really doesn't feel like your garden variety Tourette family or tick disorder family, you really, really cannot identify uh, a history. You can identify, let's say, an antecedent uh, influenza and a very abrupt onset of symptoms. It's probably worth considering But are you going to treat if you can't find that? Are you going to treat an antibody titer? No, you're not. So I think in these instances, I I want to have Equipose. I'd like to wait and see, because there may be a subset of patients with Tourette's disorder that do have this underlying mechanism. Um, And I think it's important to be open-minded about it. But the evidence is not firm one way or the other at this point. So these are just some of the uh, recommended labs that you might consider if you think you have that child, or you might refer to infectious disease. All right. We think the, uh, the, the main problem with Tourette's syndrome is, is probably uh, in the basal ganglia, and that there's a, it's a disorder of uh, sort of allowing the frontal lobe to become more disinhibited, although there are some hypotheses. Oops, I'm sorry, that that it actually emerges first from the cortex and then down. Um, There's been a lot of neuroimaging studies, but they involve very small groups, and and so we don't have a firm uh, bottom line on this, other than it it does seem to have impaired networks that are similar to other hyperkinetic movement disorders. And perhaps perhaps these are just immature networks that in some people eventually uh, normalize. So what's the treatment? Well, this is kind of exciting because we could give the same talk for the past you know, 20 years and, and pretty much say the same things, but we have a very different message today. And uh, it's largely because we, we see that a, a very benign treatment, a behavioral intervention, has effect sizes that approach that of medicines and, and come without the side effects and are actually pretty easy to deliver. And so after psychoeducation, which is a really important first step, all right, just presenting the diagnosis, helping the family and child know what a tick is, what it isn't, give them some sort of uh, framework to work with and maybe link them with. Do you have a local Tourette chapter here? No? What's the closest Tourette chapter? In Boston, maybe? Massachusetts. I mean, that would be important to link the family up there. That's a great source of support for them, and certainly with the national organization as well. So that's part of your um, psychoeducation. But this behavioral treatment, CBIT, is is highly effective, and now our recommended first intervention uh, above conventional medications and, and experimental treatments. So... What are some of the things that in your busy office you might want to be looking at, too? Well, you know, as I said, the ticks are sort of, you know, they're just a red flag of the tip of an iceberg. Um, Often, you will see multiply affected family members. You may see uh, a variety of comorbidities in in different individuals, including the child. Bullying? What do you think? Pretty common. All right? Ticky? Wiggy ticky? Um, actually, though, it may not be more common than bullying in general because bullying's pretty common. <laughs> so, we don't really know. Um, but we do know that many children with uh, Tourette syndrome are more isolated socially. They have more personal problems, interpersonal problems, and even uh, there's been one study that says that they tend to be more rejected by their families, which is sort of interesting. Um, it's important to work with these other. Um, support groups in your, in your communities. What about school? Well, this is pretty important. Uh, this is based on the Tourette Impact Study. It was an online survey and the estimate is about half of all children in Tourette have special education needs, which is a lot. Um, The other thing that was interesting from this study was that you you think that promoting awareness makes things better, and we have these youth ambassadors that come into the classroom, and the goal, of course, is to reduce the um, stigma. Well, it does improve awareness, but it doesn't always translate into having that, you know, a birthday party invite or a, a play date on the weekend. So I think we have to work a little bit harder to see how do we actually uh, reduce the stigma for these children and improve their, their ability to socialize with peers. There's a number of different behavioral treatments that are used for ticks. I'm just going to focus very quickly on, um, on CBIT and habit reversal. And habit reversal is not a new treatment. It's been around for the 50s. And in fact, it's been around treating ticks since the 50s, but because of this battle that emerged in the early 60s to define tics as a bona fide neurological symptom. The organization didn't want to have anything to do with the behavioral therapy because that seemed like it was kind of moving too much into the psychological realm again. But the truth is, is that we know now in 2016 that behavioral treatments can induce similar physiological changes to our somatic treatments. So I'll tell you a little bit about habit reversal and then I'll let you know that CBIT, which is Comprehensive Behavioral Management for Ticks, it's basically habit reversal, but you're adding on relaxation training and you're adding on uh, sort of just some extra components in terms of uh, analyzing uh, the the antecedents and consequences of the TICs. So what is an awareness training? I'm not going to make you into behavioral therapists, but I bet some of you are doing this already because These treatments actually are things that many patients discover on their own as ways of coping with their tics. Awareness training is pretty much true for almost any habit or habitualized behavior. You have to be aware that you're doing it, all right? If you wanna cut down on eating M&Ms, for example, then you have to think about the fact that, when do you do it? Is it when you go into the office and you see that bowl on your secretary's desk? Is it when you walk into somebody's living room and you see a bowl? I mean, what, what are the contexts? When does it happen? Does it happen when you're hungry? Does it happen when you're tired? Sort of becoming more aware of the context when that symptom occurs. And then the other piece of awareness training is looking at what things make it better, what things make it worse. Does that child tick more when uh, he or she comes home because mom says, How are your ticks today? <laughs> pretty common scenario right or does that child tick more because mom says oh or dad it could be either parent um oh you, you know you look like you're really suffering let me give you a back rub we would call that an inadvertent positive reinforcement you don't have to do homework tonight your ticks are too bad you know what you don't even have to go to school tomorrow your ticks are so bad do you understand what i'm saying these are you know loving gestures of support but inadvertently may end up reinforcing the symptoms. So you have what we call externally reinforcement, and then there's the internal reinforcement. I mean, you scratch that mosquito bite, you feel better for a second, right? We would call that an internal reinforcement. Um, And these are things that are looked at uh, with with habit reversal. So the first part, uh, part is the awareness training. The second part is working with that child on a competing response, and I am amazed how well children come up with their own competing response. You don't have to do it for them. You could say, all right, you're showing me that you cough, and it really bothers you. What kind of sound does that make? Oh, well, when I cough, I, I cough out. I expel air out. So what could you do that would be impossible? What would be the exact opposite? It's like an opposite game of, of coughing. Well, I could inhale." And that's exactly what you can do because you can't cough and inhale at the same time. And you hold it until that urge, not till you pass out, but until the urge subsides, and then breathe out slowly through the nose. That would be a competing response. And a lot of ENTs have used these for these repetitive uh, coughing or or, uh, other uh, vocal tics for a long time. But again, let's say you have a, a tick like this. All right? Now, you don't want a competing response like that. Because that's a little bit more conspicuous and and uncomfortable, and like it's not better than your tick, you want to choose a competing response that is actually more subtle. So it might be, you know, taking the elbow and pressing against your waist. Can't tell that I'm trying to do a competing response right now. So um, a variety of these that can be done. They learn quickly. You'd be surprised how quickly children will do this. And when presented in a neutral way, and I want to emphasize that. because we don't have parents, some of them get too vigorous you know, when they're trying to do this with their child and then it does become a sort of inadvertent positive or negative reinforcement. You, you want to sort of present it as this, this is a way you can actually try to manage this. And that's a good feeling, to be able to, to have some control. The uh, evidence basis for CBT's great. In fact, it's better than most of our psychopharmacologic studies. Uh, this was actually one of the largest studies that was done in children with Tourette. 126 children, and it was published in JAMA back in 2010. And it shows the CBIT, which formally by protocol was ten, session, uh, 10 excuse me, eight sessions over 10 weeks, each about an hour, um, and it showed a you know not a cure for ticks, but a, a, de- a significant decrease in ticks. And what was great is that the decrease was durable. So it's not as if it just lasted during the time that they were in the study. It actually uh, was still of benefit six months later. So the effect size is actually comparable to that of risperidone. Now, do any of you prescribe risperidone? That's good that you don't. It's an awful drug. I mean, I look, as a psychiatrist, we end up having to prescribe these medicines. But I hate most of them, all right? Because... First you have a child with tics, but now you have a child who's overweight and, you know, pre-diabetic and can't think straight and has breasts. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of side effects with these medicines. So if you're going to give me a choice, I, I'd rather go for the C-BIT any day of the week. But the problem with the, the C-BIT is that um, if you have severe ADHD, that does seem to make it less effective. And let's face it, that's true about all of our Therapy interventions. If you can't focus, if you can't sustain your attention, it's very hard to uh, get the benefit from from therapies. Mm-hmm. So you really have to treat that first. So what's our paradigm shift? Well, for any of you who you know have been practicing for years and years, our old party line was ignore the tics, don't don't talk about them. If you uh, try to hold them in, they're going to get worse. If you try to uh, Suppress them, you'll get a different one, and they've actually done studies to show that's just not the case, which is pretty interesting. So you don't your tics don't get worse by suppressing. In fact, the better you can suppress, uh, the the better you can manage your tics. So we don't say they're voluntary. We understand suppressing uh, suppressing these movements is not easy, but it's a skill that can be strengthened, uh, not not normalized, but strengthened. Right. So. It's, it's. I guess I'd liken it to. Do any of you remember the old recommendations for aggression used to be punching bags, right? Didn't get that aggression out. Do you know what, what the the findings were from punching bags? Right, it worsens aggression. So it turns out inhibition, not a bad thing. It's got a bad rep. Okay. When do you know that you need to move on to a medication treatment for ticks? Well, this is about the only time I quote Freud, all right? Freud's definition of mental health was the ability to work, love, and play. And I think that's a pretty good definition of mental health. And so uh, I add to that, in addition, if there are problems with pain, and imagine, if you're doing this movement all day long, you get a lot of pain. I know just from uh, we were con- uh, talking about this, we converted to electronic records last week. and My desk faces a wall, so every time I try to see patients, I have to turn and i could i just I could barely sleep. I mean I had a lot of neck pain, and it, it made me you know sort of reminded me again of, of how painful uh, these ticks can be for patients so that that 's a reason to intervene in my mind. Um, these are the different medications that are used uh, the the A stands for you know sort of uh, uh, best evidence with uh, two or more randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. B is at least one randomized, placebo-controlled study. And C is just sort of anecdotal evidence. And I put some uh, dose ranges there for you as well. Um, not so great, right? I mean, that's the, the response rates with these medications. Not not that impressive, but on the other hand, when you think of quality of life, if you ask somebody if you can reduce their symptoms by 30%, they'll take it. And you know, it does make a, a difference in overall quality of life. Um, these are actually sort of a little outdated now, but these were the first ACAP uh, treatment parameters for ticks, which emphasize behavioral therapy as your first-line intervention, and then uh, suggest clonidine, the alpha agonist, and/or atypicals as your second line for more severe tics. There are other medications that have been used. Um, an active area area of inquiry right now is looking at the uh, VMAT2 inhibitors. So that's your vesicular monoamine oxidase transporter 2 inhibitors. Tetrabenazine is a non-specific inhibitor, which is probably why you see more side effects. Um, It inhibits VMAT-1 and 2, but with some of the newer ones, you will get fewer side effects. And these are some other treatments. Now, these are some experimental treatments. I'm very curious about this. Have you heard of this neurocranial vertical distractor? It's big among parents on the internet, and actually, the Tourette Association has funded a study with my colleague John Walkup. But I'll tell you about it just because you might hear from your patients. Basically, it was developed by a dentist, and his hypothesis is that tick disorders have to do with this uneven growth of the jaw during puberty that disturbs the angle of the jaw. And so he corrects it. He uses kind of this device that looks to me very much like a, a retainer that you use when you, you're wearing braces, and it is supposed to suppress the ticks. And this, this, uh, this uh, Stax, who, who devised this, he insists that Tourette is actually a peripheral nerve uh, disorder. It's not a central nervous system problem. And so the peripheral uh, trigeminal nerve is getting irritated, and by correcting this angle uh, magically somehow, it does make it better my own belief is it's probably a competing response. It's hard to do certain ticks when you have a retainer in your mouth. Uh, and I have patients who chew and bite it and break it. But I also have met people who really swear by this and think it, it, it's helped them. On Long Island, there are dentists charging $8,000 for this, you know, non-approved, and, you know, it's not covered by insurance. And, of course, I imagine you find this here, too. You know, families are willing to do whatever they can to try to help their child. So I say warn them to just wait. There is actually a study, and if it turns out that this is a good treatment, then I think we'll all feel okay about it. But right now, it's not something that I would recommend. Uh, Deep brain stimulation is performed for, for severe cases. It requires an ethics panel for children under 18. We actually had a 17-year-old at our site who had deep brain stimulation, and uh, she had bilateral thalamic targets. I can tell you she's she went from someone who could not function at all and she now is employed and has a life. So it's not uh, for everybody. It's still experimental, but uh, that's something to stay tuned. Oh boy, five minutes to do comorbidities, but these are important. So Actually, this slide I want you to focus on, and the reason why I want you to focus on this is for two reasons. Again, you're pediatricians, which means that over time, since tic disorders I've emphasized are associated with psychiatric co-occurring disorders, you need to kind of continue to sort of check in and check up. All right? ADHD symptoms usually precede tics by maybe three to four years. Um, But in some higher-functioning children, you may not notice those ADHD symptoms. Um, OCD symptoms typically occur a couple of years after the onset of ticks. But again, if you don't sort of inquire about them, you'll miss an opportunity to actually screen for disorders that cause quite a bit of morbidity. And this just gives you sort of an overall frequency of some reported uh, prevalences for OCD, ADHD, non-OCD anxiety disorders sleep disorders, and autistic spectrum, it turns out, has a very high uh, comorbidity with tic disorders. Okay, so I just told you that. What do we know about ADHD and tics? Well, having tics doesn't necessarily worsen your prognosis in terms of ADHD, but having ADHD most definitely has a negative impact on your prognosis if you have a tic disorder. But the good news, uh, well... Let me ask you, how many of you recommend psychostimulants for children with tics? Just one? (laughs) Two? Okay, every one of you here, this is a take-home message. I don't even care if you remember anything else. This is important. It's okay to treat children with tic disorders with psychostimulants if they have ADHD, and ADHD is their primary focus for treatment. And nine times out of ten, it will be their primary focus for treatment. So the, the the best evidence now, so this was looked at, this is a study uh, by Michael Block at Yale that did a meta-analysis of studies that treated ADHD plus ticks, and he found that actually only when you use these mega, mega doses of amphetamine did you get an increase in ticks, otherwise there really was no difference. And this was a more recent study by that group where they did a, a meta-analysis of um, of treatment of ADHD and looked at new onset of tics or worsening of tics. And again, the take-home message here is there was no difference, really, statistically between placebo and treatment with psychostimulant. So the psychostimulant can be helpful for the child's ADHD, and I would not withhold it just on your fear that it might make their tics worse. Although I tell you, our electronic chart every time I try to prescribe it, it comes up with a warning telling me it's contraindicated for treatment of tic disorder. So, but the the evidence doesn't support that, and I don't think that warning will ever leave the F, the the PDR. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't appear to worsen anxiety, which is another fear. But that said, I mean, you're going to look at your individual child, and if you have an individual child who you expose, and I have these in my practice. You know, about 10 to 20 percent of children will have worsening of tics with a stimulant. And if you see a persistent worsening, you know, the cost-benefit, you're, you're going to stop that stimulant, right? Another question people say, well, doesn't the stimulant cause tics? Uh, this came up in a, in a question yesterday. Well, think about the time that as pediatricians you would normally initiate psychostimulant. When would you say Or do you? You do. I know you do. Often when the child starts school, right? I mean, you know, in the elementary school years. So, I also told you that average in natural history of tick disorders, ticks emerge around age five, six. So there's that kind of you know, collision just at a time when you would normally expect ticks to develop. Uh, I got a question about a child who uh, his mother said, oh, you know, he's, he's been on stimulant a few years, but I know it's making it worse. He's 13. His tics are terrible. What did I tell you about the natural history, right? That's when you expect right around puberty that the tics might And in a child who has delayed puberty. You know, you keep that in mind, too. The evidence basis uh, for combined ADHD and Tourette and tics is best for the alpha agonist, not as good uh, for the non-stimulant atamoxetine, and only case report for the atypical, and these are just your usual other treatments. I'm gonna rush through that. OCD. What about OCD? Do you see OCD in your office? I usually, so you know, see those rough hands, right? The red hands, sort of a spot diagnosis. Um, So this is the newest uh, DSM-5 definition, and there's a category now for specification of tick associated. But these are some of the symptoms that you may see in the children. And I find that OCD and ADHD symptoms are very commonly sort of misunderstood for each other. So sometimes a parent might think their child is disorganized and distracted when in fact they're performing rituals in the bathroom that just make it impossible for them to get out, or they can't choose clothing. The OCD that you see with tics is a difference in age of onset, it's earlier, more males than females, and the type of obsessions tend to focus on aggression and sexual obsessions. I'll try to get through here. The medication response is not as robust as the treatment of OCD without ticks. So, your CBT is actually your first line. And the other piece I'd like to emphasize is that, you know, look at the parents, because I'm telling you about disorders that co occur and are genetic. If you have a parent with OCD, as many of my families uh, do, I mean, there was an anesthesiologist who had every single member of his family walking around in scrubs all day. And everyone went along with this because they knew if they didn't, they would get in trouble and all hell would break out. And it was sort of like walking in eggshells. We call that family accommodation, all right, because what that inadvertently is doing is it's just reinforcing the OCD symptom in the father. So you have to deal with that, too. I'm going to end here. I hope I gave you that sense that this balance of living with ticks and its comorbidities is very much like being stuck in a lifeboat with a Bengali tiger. The uh, impact, uh, we said, about special education needs. We talked a little bit about bullying. And generally, quality of life, surprisingly, in children with tick disorders is actually less than in children with asthma or children without asthma or ticks, And the children who are most needy, the ones with tics and these co-occurring disorders, are the least likely to receive effective care. So I think we'll stop here. I need to add a female to this uh, <laughs> list of pictures. But you can see that it's not incompatible with a great life. Tim Howard, one of the best soccer goalies in the world, undoubtedly, uh, was and is uh, someone who has Tourette syndrome, ADHD, OCD and was raised by a single parent and uh, still emerged with good self-esteem and you know, it's just a very talented individual. So this is just your contact information if you need, and I'm happy at any point, uh, and I know any of the different centers of excellence are happy to provide you with consultation and, and, and any kind of guidance you, you need about your patients. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
0: Budman and thank you for the Chart Association for bringing Dr. Budman here. Um, we're running over a little bit, so I'm sure Dr. Budman will be happy to stay and answer a few questions. Um, but thank you very much for materials oh, to outside. and um, materials outside. So thank you very much everybody for coming.